Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Because he's listening to the Stick to Wrestling Pod Pod Podcast. I want to thank my friends at the Rolling Stones for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Give us 60 minutes, and perhaps indeed we will give you a wicked good podcast. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. Before we get rolling on the show, I want to encourage you to follow me on Twitter. Just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guy who has the avatar with two wrestlers fighting with chairs. Also, If you haven't joined our Facebook group yet, you should. It's good conversation about wrestling, good questions, good answers. We don't always stick to wrestling. We had kind of a weird thing happen where someone put up a post, hey, who would you like more, David Letterman or Jay Leno? And one guy, like, he didn't really flip out. He was just like, you know, what are you doing not talking about wrestling? It's like, because it's okay. And the guy, like, quit the group. I don't know. But And last week, I was all happy and excited because Memorial Day was coming up, right? Well, we're in the middle of Memorial Day weekend, and we have had nothing but rain. And the forecast says nothing but rain until maybe Monday where it's just cloudy. So, wow, sucking Memorial Day. One other thing. Neil Shockett, who was the guest last week, and everyone was really happy with with him being on, just wanted me to clarify something. He said that Lord Alfred Hayes was broken down, and he just wants everyone to know he doesn't mean like you know emotionally or financially anything like that. He, I mean, I didn't take it that way. He told the story about how Blackjack Lonza had an in-ring accident with Lord Alfred Hayes up in Montreal, and Lord Alfred Hayes's legs were never the same, and. When Lord Al was in the WWF, he was mid to late 50s, and a lot of the wrestlers are physically broken down. So he, bottom line, he meant no disrespect by that. With that, I want to bring on a guest making his maiden voyage as a guest on Stick to Wrestling, Matt Mann. Matt, thank you for coming on. How are you? I am actually heavy-hearted. Tomorrow is the 22nd anniversary of the man that introduced me to pro wrestling and uh, roller derby as well as other sports, my dad, he would go to shows in the seventies and bring home the, the programs. And, and he would tell me about what was going on uh, in the Shires territory. His favorites were Pepper Gomez. You know, a couple shows ago, you mentioned people say, Oh, yep. Their favorites, Pepper Gomez. But yeah, this one's, this one's for you, pop. I know you're watching me. So we got that out of the way. All right. Excellent. And I know roller derby was really big in general in the 60s but uh, and late early 70s but i understand it was really big out your way kizar was the place do you remember lou if you want to chime in just just kind of vaguely i would see it this is probably on the downside when they were on uh, channel 26 in san francisco the bay bombers fun stuff though and jim fitzpatrick on facebook he's a collector of of a uh, pro wrestling memorabilia as well as I think he's might still be the head of uh, of a roller derby club where, you know, they have meetings and they, they have a bunch of memorabilia. Yeah. James is, he's been, he was a ringside photographer at the Cal palace. I don't know. He may be one of your friends on Facebook, uh, Lou, but yeah, that gentleman, he knows everything about, you know, the pro wrestling as well as the roller derby. He was knee deep. He had a good relationship with Ann Cavello, you know, the, 
Bruno Sammartino or, or the Ric Flair of roller derby. Just good stuff. And, and, you know, when the world gets back to, you know, its own, you know, when we're okay, we're probably going to try to do a reunion out here just to show the love of Bay Area wrestling as well as uh, roller derby. But yeah, that, that was fun stuff. Uh, what did you think about the roller derby, John? I was never a fan, which doesn't mean that I, I liked it or disliked it. It just never, like when it was on UHF TV in the 70s, you know, I just I just never watched. I mean, my cousins watched it, and I just never got into it, which, you know, it doesn't mean I hate it or anything. It made a comeback around here, like maybe 12, 15 years ago, I worked with a girl who was part of the roller derby. Now, like, I was like, you're little, you're well, kind of tiny to be doing this. You're going to get knocked around. She's like, nope, you're not going to hit what you can't catch. I'm like, okay. Well, roller derbies on the independent level is pretty big out here uh, with the ladies and they're vicious and it's a shoot. It's not worked. It's a shoot. These, these ladies are insane, but you know, we're, we're here to stick to wrestling. So John, <laughs> I'm going to hand the questions off to you. You're the host. All right. Well, before we got on the air, you know, I just say hi to Matt. How you doing? And we were talking a little bit about AEW. And you say you have a story of some sort that you want to share with the, everybody. I haven't heard this one yet. Okay. This this is great. Back in the AOL grandstand days. Whoa. Boom. I actually worked for the Boston sports guy, Mr. Simmons, who took Get over out of here. running the grandstand. And I was G. S-T-D-D-O-G-G-Y. I was a moderator. And I, you know, I dealt with, dealt with Tony on the trading boards. Uh, I don't think I've ever traded with him, but I did deal with him because I was a mod. Tony yeah, Khan, I go, I go back far back. Yeah, the AEW owner. I go, I go far back, man. I mean, I, I dealt with the who's who. And then after that, to the Crazy Max boards, which was insane until it got shut down by a certain Philadelphia tape owner. But and was rebranded by Bob Barnett, but I go that far back with tape trading. And while we're on the, the tape trading uh, discussion here, the first tape of yours I ever got had Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair from Landover, Maryland, March 18th, 89, the six-star match. Yes, Dave Meltzer gave it six stars. So that was the first six-star match in history. Yes, yes, that's... You know, when I when I hear the name McAdam, I'm like, yep, that that match, that tape. I don't even remember what else is on the tape. Neither do I, but I I remember the tape. It was just like a general mix of wrestling from the late '80s. Yeah, that match was fantastic. I haven't seen it probably in like five years, but I still prefer the Chicago and Nashville matches because simply because they were more eventful. Like this was just an unbelievably great match, but the title didn't change hands. And I saw I saw a handheld of the Philly match that night, and it was different. It wasn't the same, which was great. Steamboat and and Flair, they've both said, you know, they're they're their generational opponents, and they they don't need to put anything together. They just have a finish and they go out. And that was the match was completely different, and the the Landover one blew away the Philly one. I don't know why it was just different, and it just worked. I mean, just, I mean, think about that, having two matches of that caliber in the same day, and I'll bet one reason they switched it up, I'll bet a lot of people who went to the Philadelphia show also went to the Landover show. That's like, what, a two-hour drive? Mm. I'll see Flair Steamboat twice in a day. I don't care. You wouldn't have to tell me twice. (laughs) 
I'd grab Lou and go. There you go. So the subject today is a lot of people aren't going to realize this. June 7th, 1986, we're going to get getting the 35th anniversary of the formation of the Four Horsemen, one of the most celebrated acts in wrestling history, gold 80s nostalgia. We're going to talk a little bit first about how they formed. Matt Flair was wrestling against, uh, he was on the TV studio with Nikita Koloff and Ivan Koloff and Nikita Jump Flair. Dusty Rhodes comes to Flair's aid. This is when Flair was still a tweener. And Ric Flair flat out tells him, don't ever do that again. I don't need your help. Well, Dusty being the great listener that he is, Rick is still a babyface wrestling Nikita in a cage in Atlanta. Match ends, Flair gets the pin, Ivan runs in again, and Dusty once again makes the save. He runs off the Russians. Ric Flair is on his rear end in the ring, pointing at Dusty, saying, I told you not to do that. And the Andersons pick their spot. They get in that cage and they beat the crap out of Dusty. And Flair rewards Dusty for his help by, fictionally, of course, breaking his ankle. Matt, what are your remembrances on this? I lost it. I knew Flair was the champ. He had to defend against everybody. And when Dusty came in to save him that time, I was like, oh, dude, no. And they killed him. They killed him. They, well, they tried to kill John Wayne. It didn't work. But they tried. I went nuts. I went nuts when I saw that on Worldwide on Channel 26. I, <laughs> I missed that that br- very brief era on WTBS when Flair was defending against all comers and everyone was talking about going after Ric Flair. It, it could be Dusty Rhodes. It could be Magnum TA. It could have been Nikita Koloff or Buddy Landell or Tully Blanchard in 1985. Yep. That's one we didn't really get was the Tully. Uh, I don't think they didn't really do much on TV. I know they did a couple in the houses, but, you know, they went with the horseman route. And, you know, to be honest, I have always hated Ole Anderson because he's a grumpy bastard, and I knew he didn't fit. It was kind of a weird fit with Ole. So then when Lex came, I was like, okay, here we go. And then after Lex left and we got Barry, which was my favorite, because I've always liked the guys, you know, that were that were slick. I didn't know what work rate was back in the day, but I knew they were slick with what they were doing. Yeah, I hear you. All right, so you know? so after that, we get Starcade 85. Ole gets injured right after Starcade 85. I thought he was done. I thought, okay, Ole, he's an older guy. He's been retired before. I figured that this was their way of just sending him home, having Dusty Road injure his leg so badly with his reinforced boot. I don't know. Did you think Ole was going to be gone? Yes. Coming in, I didn't have any idea that they were going to do this angle. But once they did this angle, I didn't think he was coming back. No, obviously I was wrong. And we'll find more about that in a minute. And I talked about earlier about Ric Flair and Tully Blanchard being portrayed as not friends. Tully would challenge Ric Flair verbally on TV. You know, Ric Flair, I'm coming after your title, whatever. And now that Rick is full-fledged heel, he and Tully are now teaming at the arenas. They had a big feud in 1984, kind of cooled off in 85, and now they're buddies again. This is a, a major sea change. Well, you kind of, if they were going to do it, you had to do it with the, with the top guys that could talk all the trash on TV and, you know, do the thing in the arena. And, not, you know, they will always get their heat back. Because they always kicked ass in the arena. doesn't mean they would win. Or when Tully had the TV title, 
it would go 20 minutes, you know, instead of the time limits, 20, you go 30 and retain. So they kept their heat and you kind of had to have Tully who's a natural jerk to be in that, to be a heater. So everybody's chasing flair. Okay. Arn is just the tough guy or no, the enforcer that's got everybody's back. Tully is the shit stirrer. And then we have the gruntled, you know, grizzled veteran Oli in the back. So it, it had to work because it would have been on the cards and the TV. It would have been too many alphas that were split apart. So they had to put them all together. Yeah. You know and like saying, I, no, I, I totally understand. I mean, that's how, that's what it was when it came to be, but Oli Anderson, like I said, he got hurt after Starcade. Arn Anderson is now getting a significant singles push after teaming with Oli most of 1985, and they get behind him by putting the television title on him and giving him some meaningful TV title defenses, you know, on television, which kind of didn't happen with Manny. with Tully. Manny, the Manny match. Uh, oh yeah, that's true. The Manny match is one of my Arn Manny. Manny. Uh, oh. May or April 1985 is one of my favorite matches of all time. I'm not saying yep. it's a five-star classic, but I mean, it was, it put the Anderson, Ole Anderson just slowly, but surely turns heel over like a 10 minute period. Yeah. Manny who's actually from out here. Um, That's right. Well, this isn't the Barry Manny Fernandez show. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to defer to you, John. No, that's cool. It's, it, it, I mean, Barry's going to be part of the story. So in 1986, I didn't even catch it until I was watching tapes in the 90s. Arn Anderson starts doing interviews talking about how he, Ric Flair, and Tully Blanchard were the three horsemen of the apocalypse. I didn't remember this. He did it on NWA Pro. He did it on Worldwide. I watched both of those shows, and it went over my head. And now we're getting to June 7th, 1986, where they do the TV tapings. Out of nowhere, Ole Anderson comes back. He's been gone for about mm, five or six months. He attacks the Road Warriors alongside Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, and they keep using the term four horsemen like it's always been there. Matt, do you, do you remember anything about there being four horsemen before June 1986? No, but I remember I've seen that that beatdown of the Road Warriors on it's on YouTube. and. Uh, there's a promo, and that's the first time that I could remember that Arn mentioned it, mentioned the Four Horsemen. I know it was mentioned, you know, other time. There was another time, but, I mean, I, I don't remember. I didn't get pro. I only got worldwide, and I don't remember it on worldwide. But, yeah, I, I definitely do remember them them beating down the Road Warriors. And, you know, the Road Warriors coming from the AWA, where I just saw them kill everybody, I was in shock. I've never seen them have their butts handed to them like that. You are correct. As a matter of fact, I cannot think of any other time that the Road Warriors took a beatdown, either as baby faces or heels. I mean, they did the thing at Comiskey Stadium where the Freebirds almost cheated them out of the title, but that's not a beatdown. When they actually lost the AWA tag team titles, it was controversial. Like, yeah, this, this was the first time ever. Even when they brought him in to wrestle the Russians, the Russians didn't beat them down like that, which is surprising. You would think how strong and over the Russians were that they would have been the ones to first, you know, to heat it up. But I guess they, they wanted to keep them strong. Dusty wanted to keep them strong for, you know, for obviously something else in the future. Well, Road Warrior Hawk was having a big singles match coming up in Philadelphia. 
And Road Warrior Animal was also getting NWA title matches. But so I think that's part of the reason that they did it, because they had Ric Flair paint slapping Hawk in the middle of that angle. Oh, now, what was the date of that show? I believe it was June 7th, 1986. Yeah, but then they they wrestled 4th of July in Philly, wasn't it? Uh, yes, they did. It wasn't 4th of July. I think it was July 5th or 6th. And yeah, so, was, yeah, yeah, you, but, yeah, it was something like that in Philly. Yeah. Yeah, so you, you do the wow. angle on TV to build up the matches coming up a month later because before that, there was absolutely no build for Road Warrior Hawk as a single. Oh, it didn't work either. No, it <laughs> they didn't draw too good. Well, I, I think the whole promotion, it, it, it would have drawn fine if they had kept it at the Civic Center. As a matter of fact, I think they would have sold out the Civic Center. Just, you know, that a baseball stadium was not required for that that level of entertainment. Yeah, but we're going to have country music singles, baby. <laughs> yeah, well, we had a show where we went over that, and I went to that Philly show, and it was it was quite an adventure as far as the country acts trying to perform in front of our pro wrestling fans in Philadelphia. So we go a little bit into, you know, the horsemen become a dominant force in the NWA. J.J. Dillon becomes their manager. And then in early 1987, a guy who was a big deal in Florida. He was their not their, just their number one babyface, their number one guy. Very photogenic. So he was on the cover of a bunch of magazines, even just as a rookie. Lex Luger arrives in the NWA and the, in his first interview. He says, I want to be a member of the Four Horsemen. Matt, do you remember this? And what did you think? Being a kid, buying all the magazines, or not buying them, just sitting on the floor in Walgreens, reading them. <laughs> hey, you know, I spent my money on G.I. Joe's. It is what it is. But uh, he was all over everything. Covers, posters, uh, worked interviews, everything. And, and we knew he was going to be something. And this was before he was brought in to Jim Crockett. We knew he was going to be something special because he wouldn't be on the cover if he wasn't. Because it was either Hogan, Flair, or Luger. And Florida was becoming way too small a pond for this giant fish. And, you know, the question in 1986 was, okay, is he going to wind up with the WWF? or the NWA, or maybe the UWF. But I, I figured he was definitely going yeah. to the WWF. And then he turns, shows up on my TV on WTBS. He First thing, I want to be a horseman. And then they started doing interviews with the horsemen where they would do that kind of like everyone puts their hand together thing, except Ole was being left out. And even as someone who had just started getting the Observer, like I got it for a month or two, and when I saw that happening, I kind of figured out, okay, Ole's out, this time probably for real, and Luger's on his way in, and that's what happened. Yeah, I'm surprised that they even brought back Ole. You know, he should have just stayed. Just stayed. Well, because when he came back, it really didn't... I, I can't root for the guy. <laughs> you know, he's unru- you can't root for him. He's such a jerk. Some people like that, believe it or not. I think Ole's last run, and this was really his last run. 1990, he was more of a manager. I thought it was good. I thought it was a good way to kind of end his in-ring career. When the Andersons reunited, they had a nice run as a tag team together. You know, the, the match against the Rock and Roll Express at Starcade was really good. 
but only you know and you you had mentioned like You've got Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, and Ole just seems like the odd man out. He always did. He wasn't cool. No, he wasn't a cool young guy like the other three. And I mean, I, I understand why they brought him back. It was the catalyst, you know, to create this group. But I mean, it just made too much sense to bring in Lex Luger, who my, my understanding is not only on TV, but as a shoot, he wanted to be a horseman. And to bump Ole out, now the tag team is Tully and Arn. Lex Luger is the United States heavyweight champion. Ric Flair is the world's heavyweight champion. Unlike a lot of people, and Matt, you mentioned it. I mean, this was my favorite version of the Horseman. And people are going to start screaming at me about Barry. I loved Barry. But it really felt like the four Horsemen just were, were loaded with star power with both Ric Flair and Lex Luger in it. You know, the one of the top teams went after your blue chipper. There you go. It shows, That's it. you know, they're elite. They are elite. They were elite before Kenny and his little boys were the elite. So, and I will say that to the grave. <laughs> All right. So now Lex Luger has an awesome 1987. He's the United States champion until he loses it at Starcade to Dusty Rhodes. From the start, I think we all kind of knew that Lex Luger would be turning babyface and he would become the focal point of the promotion, which never really happened. But that was the plan at one point. And at Starcade, it becomes obvious that there is friction between Lex Luger and the rest of the horsemen. Matt, what are your thoughts on that? He didn't follow the game plan. No. That's the quote from the promo from JJ. He did not follow the game plan. And I knew there was a little friction. Then they would have the promos where he would tell, you know, Luger that he wasn't following the plans and whatever. And then Luger would walk away. But then we had the battle Royal, the bunkhouse stampede where, you know, the, the horsemen were left and JJ wanted to win and uh, Luger didn't want to, you know, let him and he threw him out and won. So that, you know, that cemented it. And then he got the beat down, but it wasn't as obvious to me. Because at that time, I didn't have TBS all the time. Ah. Only when I went up to my dad's, I would have TBS. So I was kind of, you know, I would get some, fill it in with the magazines or friends at school. You know, they would come back on a Monday and tell about what, what happened on TBS. You know, stuff like that. So, I mean, I got, I got the gist of it. But then with that one, you know, that one uh, bunkhouse stampede kind of submitted it. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's over now. I was lucky enough to get Starcade 87, not on cable, but I got it overnighted to me and I got to watch it with some friends uh, the Saturday after. And as soon as I saw the end of that match, I'm like, oh, man, they are rushing the Luger turn because uh, it was supposed to be the original plan was Lex Luger retaining the United States title against Dusty Rhodes by by some chicanery. And Dusty Rhodes, the stip was that if Dusty lost, he had to leave the NWA for, I don't, I don't remember if it was for 90 or 120 days, but he had to leave, and the Midnight Rider was coming back, and obviously they changed course. The NWA wasn't doing as well as it had been, and they were just going to rush the Lex Luger turn, and they did. Well, I'm glad they did. Just I'm, gl- I'm so glad then, they did, too. So then Barry came. So Right. Barry was already with the promotion. It was like they, they in early 87, he had a great series of matches against Ric Flair. 
I mean, just phenomenal. And then it was like they couldn't figure out what to do with him. So they almost comically created the Western States Heritage title so that Barry would have a title to defend. So now Luger's a babyface. There's only three horsemen. The number one question that everyone was asking, it was the top conversation in wrestling, who's going to be the next horseman? And they really surprised me when they turned Barry Windham. I did not see that one coming at all. Once again, they, there is footage of J.J. Dillon telling Barry Windham on TV that, you know, Lex Luger's not going to be there when you need him. I never caught it. <laughs> I, I never, like, remembered him saying this until once again watching tapes in the 90s. And then finally, right after they won the tag team titles at the Clash of the Champions, Barry Windham first turns on Lex Luger, then turns on Dusty Rhodes as the Midnight Rider, and they close the show by having Barry in a limo. He's dangling the Midnight Rider's mask with one hand and holding up four fingers with the other one. So it was like, wow, Barry Windham is the new horseman. I thought it was going to be Kurt Henning. Mm. So what did you think of the Barry turn? I loved it, and I knew it couldn't have been Henning because Henning was still you know still out here doing the awa thing but that's a pretty good uh, dark horse pick i didn't think they would co- leave the you know go out of the promotion i was definitely surprised by barry yeah uh, because, because to me th- there was no one in the promotion that really fit the bill like who could mm-hmm. they have elevated into a you know wh- from the heel side who could they have elevated into a horseman barry had never been a heel before he'd been in the wrestling business for eight or nine years and I just didn't see it. And it just goes to show you never know what a guy's going to look like on the other side of the fence because Barry, in my opinion, was a phenomenal heel. Uh, yeah, his, his heel stuff, you know, either, either at this time or, or later into the 90s, uh, the early 90s, he, he excellent, excellent, excellent heel that could cut a promo, that could carry anybody. He was a lot like Flair. You know, him and Flair are, are pretty close. In my book, they're pretty damn close where they could have a match with anybody. Oh, and Barry it's is It's been prime. proven. Oh, that not, a, not a, a slicker worker. And I, I thought coming in, uh, now as this is going on and it's becoming a successful formation, even though the promotion is getting in more and more trouble financially, I figured down the road, Barry Windham would assume the Ric Flair role. Ric Flair would finally turn babyface, and that would be the two guys the promotion could build around, you know, going into the 90s. What do you think about that? I thought that a lot, and then Arn and Tully left, and then it kind of, you know, split things off. So that kind of stopped that, you know, even hoping that, that it would happen. I mean, imagine the matches in the Carolinas with Flair as a babyface against Windham. Uh, yeah, that's, that's that's like a dream match. I mean, you know, peak Barry against peak Flair, that's going to be close to five stars every night. You know, if they would have had that, they would have done the clash earlier. Sting wouldn't have gone where he went. Sting wouldn't have been the guy. Flair would have been in that spot. It would have been Flair and Barry going 45 on the first clash. Uh, you know, what? I, I think that by doing that, they would have been rushing it a little bit. But that would have been a phenomenal headliner for either Starcade 89 or probably more likely mm-hmm. the 1989 Great American Bash. Maybe mm-hmm. even the Starcade 88. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But mm-hmm. 
I'm going to voice an unpopular opinion here. I, I got word that Tully and Arn had left the NWA just, just about as soon as they did it. I, know, I knew people in Philadelphia who went to the Philadelphia arena, and they were all calling me, telling me that the Midnight's won the NWA titles and that Arn and Tully were off to the WWF. By the way, there goes another dream feud, the Midnight's against Tully and Arn. And my take on it was that by this point, look, every good gimmick, it has a shelf life. And in my opinion, the Four Horsemen, their shelf life was gone. Their, they had gone past their expiration date. It was a, it was a tough fit because the, the, the heels were the cool guys, and they were getting too many cheers. And I thought it hurt guys like Sting and Lex Luger. I thought, you know, having fans cheering for the Horsemen and booing Sting and Luger, it's just not what you want in a promotion. I agree. And we're not just talking about the Philly fans, you know, no. or uh, the, the fans in Baltimore. They were getting booed all over. And, you know, Dusty could work magic, but sometimes you just can't make chicken salad. You just can't. And, no. you know, and regardless, the fans are the people, you know, that that's who you need to listen to. That's the barometer when someone's over or not. And Dusty, I don't know, man, maybe he was getting burned out. Tully and Arn leaving, you know, things just boiled over and Dusty threw his hands up. You know, yeah, I, it was kind of a slow time. Yeah, I, I thought Dusty had definitely burned out as a booker. Again, a booker is another thing that always has a shelf life. He always runs out of ideas. And at some point, everyone's going to get tired of listening to this specific voice. So now we have J.J. Dillon, Barry Windham, and Ric Flair as the horsemen. They're still calling themselves the horsemen. They're recruiting the road warriors to join them. The road warriors had just turned. Then they lose J.J. Dillon, which supposedly was a much bigger deal off camera than on camera because J.J. was kind of the liaison between Dusty and the rest of the boys. And now J.J.'s gone. So they bring in Hiro Matsuda, who I have called one of the worst managers in wrestling history. And he was during this run. Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, boy. I know you've seen him wrestle, too. It's not not my thing. Hell of a trainer. I'll give him that. But no, thank you. We had no idea who this guy was. Because we didn't get anything from Florida. You know, we really had no idea. They were calling him the head of the Yamaguchi Corporation back when we were all spooked that Japan was going to take over everything in the United States, which obviously hasn't happened. And they they tried to to build off that. And Hiro, he was a great wrestler in the 60s and 70s, but he was not a good manager in the 80s. So now... Now they're talking about they have Kendall Windham in as a junior horseman while all this is going on. And there's talk about one there but was once a Yeah. There was once a plan in place where Dusty Rhodes was going to turn heel and the horsemen were going to be Dusty Rhodes as the lead bad guy horseman, Barry Windham, Bob Orton Jr., and Butch Reed. And it was going to be a cowboy outfit. They were, the horsemen were going to be like, you know, guys on horses. You know, it may have worked. It may have worked. You bring up the family from Florida, you know, Mulligan and, and you know, Dusty's time down there. And then also the uh, the Around the Campfire promo. Was it Nelson Royal, if I remember right? It was Nelson oh, Royal. Yeah, yeah. So you do one of those promos with them. You know, Butch Reed is a legit rodeo guy. 
it may have worked. It may have worked. You, you know, you put some shoot elements in there. You, you have a uh, butch bring out his big belt buckles and compare them to, to Flair's title belt. <laughs> you know, look, look at his belt compared to yours. This is gold. This is solid gold. You know, you can do things like that. Kendall could be the fall guy, the guy to do the jobs. You know, he could be the guy that could get pinned in the six mans or the tag matches. It may have worked because people were booing Dusty too. So yep. it may have worked. It might have, but you know what? I, I have to take myself. One thing I'm kind of good at is I can take myself back to my mindset of late 88, early 89. Butch Reed made a really good comeback as a member of Doom, but he was considered toast around this time. Bob Orton Jr. really started falling off around 86, 87, and he, his matches were not very good in the NWA in 1989. He had a feud with Dick Murdoch, and that sounds good on paper, Orton versus Murdoch, except it was terrible. The matches were terrible as well. And like I said, I thought that the, the horseman concept had been just beaten down, and it was time to do something else. But no, as soon as they can do it, as soon as Arn Anderson gets out of his WWF contract and comes back to the NWA at the end of 1989, Ole Anderson comes out and they bring Sting in as a member of the Horsemen. And about a year later, not even a year later, we're doing this all over again. And I just felt like the concept had been beaten to death. And it was just maybe not never do it again, but don't do it again right away. Hmm. Yeah, they should have waited at least five years. So you get some fresh, newer talents. I mean, Sid was a hell of a horseman, hell of a choice. You know, a good heavy. I didn't have a problem with that. You know, it's just the... Okay, let's not even mention Roma. That was just a a mistake. I mean, dude was a job guy since he broke in, and he still is a job guy on Facebook. (laughs) But, (laughs) you know, it's just not good and it didn't work no and the the 90s horsemen you know they i to this day i thought they made a huge mistake turning the horsemen they were over like craziest baby faces you know rick sting arn and ollie and they i thought they made a just a giant error turning rick ollie and arn and i i I contend that to this day yeah we didn't get a straight up flare muda program you know, we didn't get a, a, a good long Arn Muda program. There was money to be made there, and they left it on the table. Here's what I think. Uh, they actually did go around the horn with Flair versus Muda. I saw one of their matches in New Haven, Connecticut, and it was it was the first bad Flair match I had ever seen. They, they just didn't care on this particular night. I thought Muda was a good guy to go to the arenas with, but I didn't think he was, at this point, they shouldn't have had Ric Flair versus Muda on pay-per-view. I, I just didn't think he was over enough as a megastar. Hmm. Well, maybe they could have had him turn on Hart and then, you know, give him a, a, a run alone as a baby just on TV, you know, for a couple months. Then they could have went to the, to the houses with it. I can see that. I can totally see that. Yeah, no. Um so then we, we get into the 90s. Ric Flair goes to the WWF. The Horsemen are dead. Of course, as soon as he comes back to WCW, they do the Horsemen with Paul Roma, which was a joke. And then they did it during the Nitro era when it was Flair, Benoit, uh, Pillman, and who am I forgetting? Arn, of course. This was and like Dean. Jimmy. What's that? Dean. 
Oh, that's right. Dean was a horseman at one point. At this point, you know, it was like Ric Flair was getting older. His career, it looked like he was in the twilight of his career. He only had another like 12 years left to go. But that was an incarnation <laughs> of the horseman I did not like, especially when the NWO would regularly humiliate them on TV. I disliked that intensely. The Florida stuff was so bad. It was so The Florida tapings were so bad. The horsemen got buried so bad. And Mongo didn't help. You know, No, Mongo just... didn't help at all. As a matter of fact, it wasn't... It, Florida, yeah, that happened. But any time they were in Greensboro or Charlotte, like you knew Ric Flair and or the horsemen were just going to get their heads stuffed up their ass. I, I, I hated that. To this day, I hate it. You know, Mongo was a really good choice. But no one trained him. He was untrained. Yeah. You know, (laughs) Mongo's going through a a tough time right now, and I wish him all the best. But even when they brought him in as a commentator on Nitro, I didn't understand it. It's not that I didn't understand bringing in a big name that maybe didn't know anything about wrestling, but Stephen McMichael was not that big a name anymore. He was a lineman for the Bears. That little dog. <laughs> yeah, the little dog he always had with him. Good Lord. <laughs> I wonder if that was an anxiety dog for real. <laughs> Wouldn't have surprised me. I have no idea, but you know, have, how about oh, Kevin Green? How about Kevin Green as a horseman? Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. That would have worked. Now, you know what? Maybe. And Kevin Green was a great athlete. And if he had dedicated himself to wrestling, I think he could have been something. But, you know, a lot of these guys, they get a big contract to do one match, and that's all they want to do. I think his body gave up on him. You know, Uh, at least that's that's my opinion. I think he was just beaten down. He played too long, couldn't hang him up. You know, actually, you're right. I think Kevin Green would have been would have been a better choice than Mongo. Just Green, you know, Kevin played out here for my Niners, and he is just a hell of an athlete. Just all around great athlete. But. That's we're never going to know about that. Uh, I'll uh, not sticking to wrestling. I, I do not understand Kevin Green in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, he got some sacks, but you were playing against 10 guys against the run. But anyway, we have some <laughs> questions from the Facebook group. Uh, let's start with Chad Austin Demera. This is Chad Austin from ECW, by the way. Mm-hmm. What if Gino lived? Gino Hernandez. When and how long would he have been in the group? What do you think? He wouldn't have made it. Watts would have grabbed him for the UWF. And then during the buyout, he wouldn't have been over. He would have been branded a UWF guy, and he wouldn't have been pushed. Yeah, we did, almost. I think, almost a whole show, like, when Stick to Wrestling first started about the what-ifs of Gino Hernandez. And I think exactly what you laid out would have been what happened to him. Would the WWF have given him a chance at some point? Probably, but I'm not sure. Tully Blanchard, for a long time, was pushing for uh, Crockett to bring Gino Hernandez in. And let's say that happened. Gino comes in. I think if he would have come in, he would have come in right after getting his Texas Stadium payout, which is May 1985, 86, excuse me. Let's say he came in. I think the horseman would have never happened because we would have had, instead of having a a four-man faction with the horseman, you instead would have had a Tully Blanchard and Gino Hernandez managed by J.J. Dillon faction that would have been similar 
to Gino Hernandez and Chris Adams in world class. Yes, they team sometimes, but they're also singles just a little further down the card. That's that's my theory. I think Gino, if he would have came, he would have gotten the Buddy Landell push. Well, Buddy got a big push at first. That's what I'm saying. But then, oh, okay, you know, people's yes, demons I, come out and they follow I, you wherever you go. So could have been the same thing. Very possibly. I mean, they had big plans for Buddy Landell. They already gave him the national title. They were going to pair him with Baby Doll. And 1986 looked very promising coming in. And Buddy flaked out. What can you say? <sighs> Just wait till Smoky Mountain. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Not to turn this into the, the Buddy Landell show, but by the time he got, by the time Smoky Mountain became a thing, Buddy was too old to be playing the traditional Buddy Landell role. That's my opinion anyway. Another question from Jamie Ward. Could the Horsemen have been formed without Ric Flair? What do you think, Matt? No, because he needed people to keep the title. That was the whole thing, is to keep the title in your camp. It wouldn't have worked. I think it might have worked better without Ric Flair. Maybe you had to have the right guys. Like if it was just Tully and the Andersons and someone else, who is that someone else? If it's Luger, yeah, it could have worked. I'm trying to think of who else was in the company that, or even available anywhere that could have worked with, but you would have needed another major heel. And here's the thing. I've always thought that the horseman kind of watered down Ric Flair. Like Ric Flair was good enough to stand out there by himself he didn't need to be part of a group like that but you know once it happened he insisted on it always being like that well you know regardless flair would have partied with these guys so you know it's a comfort thing true so i I really don't see it happening without him honestly plus you know the relation the quote-unquote relations to the andersons being family cousins and whatnot I really don't see it happening without Flair. If anything, it could have been without Tully. That's a good point. I mean, supposedly without using the term, Ric Flair, Blackjack Mulligan, and Ole and Gene Andersons were kind of the original horsemen, except, of course, they didn't have the name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was Mid-Atlantic, right? Uh, yes, it was, like 76-77-ish. Okay, before the turn by Blackjack. Exactly. Wow. Jeez. Oh, man. Have you, you, you've seen the Cornette films, right? The, the garbage films. Oh yeah. Uh, talk about a gold mine, you know, just stuff that we read about in old magazines to see that is just amazing. Oh, the most amazing things I thought were the crowds. They had blackjack Mulligan as a baby face against Baron von Raschke. It was in 1978 and these guys are literally doing nothing, but avoiding getting the claw put on them. And there's enough heat in the building to melt butter. Mm -mm. I don't think Jim Rasky from Nebraska has ever done anything. That's what he was first called when he broke in before he became a German. Ah. So, yeah, and I don't think he's always been boring. I've always hated that guy. You know, when he did the, uh, the Baron and drag was okay. That was a chuckle, but you know, come on, Vern, you're going to steal from freaking Ronnie Garvin of all people. Yeah, Baron did absolutely nothing. No, Baron, he was, you know what? He was one of the, he came to the WWF in end of 86. He was here in 77. 
And I thought he was fine, but then again, I thought I was a little, I was a little kid. What did I know? I saw this guy in the magazines, and I'm like, oh, cool, he's here. Plotting, plotting, and I, I got to see you know uh, one of the Crusher's last matches in was '85, if I remember right. The the cage, the six man cage match. Lou, you could chime in. The six man cage match at the Cap Palace. That was the last time I saw the Crusher, and that dude did nothing. You know, he hit Enon and that's about it. Well, that's the thing. He was big in the Midwest. No. Well, that it was a different time and the style was, was different. And, you know, we, they, they all can't be Jim Brunzel. No, they can't. Now, here's a question. I already answered this a little bit from Tim Tietrold. What happens with the horsemen if Arn and Tully don't go to the WWF? What are your thoughts, Matt? <sighs> wow. Maybe a full-on face turn in a year or so, because I mean they were getting cheered anyway, and you know maybe Dusty would figure, you know I need some new ideas, and and Dusty can go with uh, I don't know whoever with JJ managing him, managing Dusty and his group against the newly turned babyface Horseman. That may have worked. I think it would have made a hundred percent sense. To almost flip the entire roster, turn Dusty heel and turn all four of the horsemen babyface. I don't think that was going to happen. Obviously, it's a little more complicated than that. When the NWA got bought out by Turner, there was an insistence that Dusty turn heel. So I don't know. I mean, what happens if they don't go to the WWF? My guess is the gimmick. they, They keep it together. It's, you know, Rick. Barry until he flakes out, Arn and Tully, and it just gets staler and staler by the day. And once again, I I cannot emphasize to the audience enough, I was a fan of the Four Horsemen. I was a fan of the guys collectively and individually, but it, it had run its course, and yet Flair wanted to do it, and Dusty wanted to do it, so it kept getting done. Yeah, to the ground. All right, Justin Brown asks, you get to turn Flair babyface against the rest of the horsemen. How are you doing it? Matt, do you, have you thought about this? Mm. I would say you're having a war games and Flair gets quote unquote hurt, maybe a shoulder or something. And, you know, Dusty or someone puts an arm bar on him and, and he submits. And the rest of the horsemen give him a horseman beat down for quitting. Nice and easy. Then you have Dusty come back in and save him, maybe. I can see that. What I have thought for a long time that they should have done, build up for Starcade 87. Okay, have Ron Garvin beat Ric Flair for the NWA championship, right? Then, whoa, Lex Luger, like a week later, defeats Ronnie Garvin for the NWA championship. Luger is getting all cocky about it. And says, you know, now I'm the champion. Obviously, that makes me the leader of the horsemen. Arn and Tully go along with this. But Flair wants his belt back. And, you know, Flair takes a beat down from the horsemen. We have Starcade 87 ready to go. Lex Luger defending against Ric Flair. And by the way, if I had done this, I would have kept the title on Lex Luger after Starcade. I would not have put it right back on Ric Flair. I would have seen how far Lex Luger could go as my heel world's heavyweight champion. And Lex was always, in my opinion, 
a lot better as a heel than a baby face. He's a natural jerk. So, you know, he was always cocky and arrogant and, you know, you, you could kind of get the feeling that he wasn't one of us. He wasn't a fan, you know, you could get that feeling about him, but you know, he was, you know, it looked like a million bucks could at times cut a decent promo at times, at times, but at times (laughs) I'm being, I'm being very kind to Lex because, you know, life is, you know, dealt him a pretty messed up hand and, you know, he earned some of it too. But, you know, I'm all for redemption. But, you know, it, it that that's a pretty good scenario. I probably would have had Luger hold the title and then have to run the gambit, uh, Bash 88, you know, where they would line up for the tour, so many different challengers, and someone, I don't know who, could knock them off. That would make sense. And by that point, you might be looking at Ric Flair again. Luger, you know, people are, are kind of harsh on Lex Luger. I mean, he... He's in the business for 10 days. They put the Southern Heavyweight Championship on. They have him beat Wahoo McDaniel, and now he's the top guy in Florida. He's barely even wrestled. They figure, okay, we'll we'll teach him on the fly. And then not even 18 months later, he's on national television on JCP being given a role that he looks ready for, but he's just not ready for. But I, I think by the time 88, 89 came along, like Luger was was good in the ring. I'm not saying he was great, but he was good. And his carryable. interviews were. What's that? He was carryable. I, I you know what? He could I'll, be carried. I think he was even better than that. I'm not saying mm. he was great, but I, I do think he was better than carryable. Mm. Yeah, and then his interviews got a lot better. And he you know, he was an intelligent guy. He just needed some time to, to put it all together. I do remember that when he first turned babyface, he's doing an interview at, at WTBS and the fans are cheering for him. They're going nuts. And he's like, okay, now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> That's not what you I, do, I, I, I wonder, I wonder what mental capacity he had for the actual in ring, you know, like, like Rick rude, he couldn't remember spots and it thinks that'd be simple for him. I wonder if Luger was like that. Uh, maybe. I mean, you know, supposedly it's it's not an easy business to learn. And, and there's a reason why a lot of wrestlers hit their peak, you know, mid thirties, even late thirties. You know, Fla- that's when Flair was at his best. You mean he wasn't at his best 1973 at MSG against Pete, Pistol Pete? Pistol Pete Sanchez. That Come was 75, on. I think. I nope, think. 73. All right. 73, year I was born. 76. Is ah. it 76? Yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah. All right, you're you're in my doghouse now, Lou. <laughs> Woof. <laughs> All right, there we go. That's my dog. Yeah, Rick came in and wrestled Pete Sanchez and Frank Williams in 76. If, if I have the Williams date correct, which I think I do. Rick Flair said in his book that he wrestled these two guys who never won a match. Pete Sanchez actually did win matches. He was like on a on an SD Jones level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, SD uh, Jones was a hell of a worker too. Uh, not really, but C- Craig Bartimol Bart writes in: uh, Where else would the Horseman format have worked? When and who would be in it? And by this, I don't mean a stable, but a faction devoted to the world champion, keeping his title while still being champions in their own rights 
I'll let you, Matt, I'll let you weigh in on this. And I, I have something to say about this as well. I would go with Minnesota. I would say probably a Rick Rude, a Nikita Koloff, and the Road Warriors. Wow. Three, three guys, the horsemen from the same high school. There it is. They know each other. They can tolerate each other on the road. That's a good point. You know, you know, the AWA almost had their own version of the horsemen, sort of, when they had Bobby Heenan managing Nick Bockwinkle, Ray Stevens, Blackjack Lonza, and Bobby Duncan. Like, Nick was the heavyweight champion. Lonza and Duncan were the tag champions. Stevens was the legend. I mean, they didn't call themselves anything, but, I mean, it was kind of the same thing. They were the Heenan family. There you go. Yeah. But... Craig asked, you know, where else would it have worked? I mean, by night, you know, wrestling can be a very copycat business, especially in the 70s and 80s. And there were a couple, at least, of promotions that tried to have their own four horsemen. I, I tried looking it up. I couldn't find it. Continental had their version of the four horsemen. It was like Dutch Mantel, Jimmy Golden, and a couple of other guys. World-class, it was same stable, thing. wasn't it? Oh, uh, you know, you got it. That's what they call themselves. There it is. And so they had their own four horsemen. World class tried doing it with, oh my God, Eric Embry, Vince Apollo. I'm trying to think of the other guy's name, but, they, they, you know, a guy who was a nobody and someone else. It wasn't even Al Perez. It was, I forget what they were calling themselves. It was like, oh my God, everyone's got to have a horseman now. Mm-mm, not good. All oh, those. The, the changeover to USWA was bad in Texas, boy. That was bad. It was. Bad. It, was it was bad. I mean, Eric Embry, as you're, you know, when you Eric Embry becomes Booker and he pushes Kerry Von Eric out of the way so that Eric could be the number one baby face, that is not a successful formula, in my opinion. I mean, if anything, I would have went with Jarrett, but that's just me. You know, the young upstart, you know, and oh, boy. Yeah, that stuff was really rough. I mean, I love Dr. Tom and, and Bill Dundee to death, but, oh, stuff just wasn't good. And it wasn't playing good in the houses. You know, the TV was not good. The fans were, you know, they were kind of in there. They weren't. It was sad and, oh, just not a good time. I mean, it was the same sportatorium where, you know, seven years ago, the place is rocking. With, you know, the Von Erics against the Freebirds. And five years ago, there was rocking with Chris Adams and Gino Hernandez against the Von Erics. And now you clearly have this, this, this obviously minor league promotion. It was fun, but it was minor league. No. Phil Hick- I loved Phil Hickerson. Memphis stuff was great. You know, the promo on the Ultimate Warrior, uh, on uh, Sting and the Warrior was great. Good stuff. But, geez, that was so sad seeing how big Phil was and it was just not good. I mean, Tojo was not good. We oh, were past no. the stereotypical Japanese heel and it was just not good. And it, it just hurt my feelings. Watching that <laughs> Phil stuff. Hickerson as PY Chuhai. They, they take Phil yeah. Hickerson from, from Jackson, Tennessee, and they give him this gimmick where he is now Japanese. <laughs> it was like, they, they tried to hide that it was, they never said, oh, yeah, this is Phil Hickerson. But as- aside from, you know, putting on the makeup, he didn't change anything about himself. <laughs> yeah, he was huge, too. 
He was huge. And All right. Wow. Oh, I feel sorry for ESPN. They have to keep the archives. Yeah. <laughs> All right. One last question from Eric Peyton Smith. If it were possible to have any four other than past members, of course, in the group that you think could still give it the legitimacy it always deserved, who would they be? Like, in your opinion, who are the non-horsemen that could have maybe been horsemen? The Varsity Club. Rotunda? Or Steiner doesn't strike me as a, as a horseman. Doc um, kind of doesn't well, either. R- Rotunda, Doc, Sullivan out front, and maybe Spivey. Or you can, you can bring up Ron Simmons and, and have him, you know, he was another legitimate athlete that would fit in with him. I think the, the varsity club would, would have been decent horsemen too. I have said this on the show multiple times. I didn't think the varsity club was pushed hard enough in 1988. And it was one of the rare things in wrestling. It still had legs when they broke it up in early 1989. I think they could have done a lot with a varsity club of Dan Spivey, Mike Rotundo, and Dr. Death, Steve Williams, managed by Kevin Sullivan. I thought they broke them up way too early, but the problem was that Doc was frequently in Japan, and they wanted Spivey to team with Sid to form the Skyscrapers to feud with the Road Warriors, and that never went anywhere. Uh, you know, Doc was always money. It's, the problem is he loved sushi. <laughs> you know, that was the problem. He loved that sushi. Yeah. And, <laughs> hey, and he... He loved he loved those Baba paychecks too. I mean, he was just being. Yeah. It, it's a good life when you're over there. I mean, people buy you dinner, they drive you around, and you get paid big time to work some pretty stiff matches. Oh, well, you know, all that money is going to pay for the doctor bills. So and, you know it. All. Oh, I I remember Terry Gordy. The stories about Terry Gordy in '87. You know, using two rolls of adhesive tape to keep his knee together because he couldn't afford to or slash didn't want to take the time off to get it operated on but you know he could barely move whether he was here or working for watts i mean he was he was on top for watts too you know there was no time for him to take any time off no that was that was the mentality in the business like unless you were totally incapacitated you did not take time off oh man that that Doc was on a different level and we all knew he was a legit badass. Yep. And that's, that's why the brawl for all broke my heart. You know, it, it really broke my heart. And, you know, I did get to spend an afternoon uh, towards the end of Doc's life uh, when he was plugging his book out here at a fan fest. And uh, it was, it was sad to see, you know, the state Doc was in and, you know, cancer just killed him. You know, and it goes to show you, man, it's that dip. You know, it's the, the, the dip. You can't chew the tobacco, man. That stuff will kill you, too. That's what got oh, Doc. That's right. That's right. You know? My Doc story, I, I told the story about Dusty, where I'm in Philadelphia, and someone says, you know, you know I, I was like, I'm getting my picture taken with Dusty. He's like, oh, no, Dusty doesn't do that. And I'm like, well, he's doing it for me. He said the same thing with Doc. He's like, oh, no, Doc doesn't take pictures. I'm like, well, he's taking a picture with me. And I just stopped. I said, Excuse me, Mr. Williams, are those all of your Orange Bowl rings? Because he played for Oklahoma. When you when you win the Orange mm-hmm. Bowl, you get a ring. And he couldn't wait to show off his Orange Bowl rings to me. I was talking to him about something different. And I'm like, hey, can I get a picture with you real quick? Oh, yeah, sure. 
I'll try to find that one and post it on the board. I'm not sure where it is, but I got Doc. Anyway, I'll wrap up the show by saying that the guys I think could have been in the Horsemen, the top two guys, I mentioned Kurt Henning earlier. We're talking like the 87, 88 version of Kurt Henning, even 89 and 90, I think would have made a great Horseman. Oh, then again, he was in there very briefly, so I guess he doesn't count. The other guy would be Ted DiBiase. If I were running JCP in 1987 and I had just gotten, you know, acquired the UWF, I would have used Ted DiBiase to turn Ric Flair and Ted DiBiase would have been the top guy in the Horseman. And I think that would have been an excellent feud. One of the greatest feuds ever, Ric Flair and Ted DiBiase. Matt, man, thank you for taking the time to be on Stick to Wrestling. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. We finally got this on tape. I appreciate you having me on, John. And just uh, go on YouTube, search Nick Bockwinkle versus Kurt Hennig, and just enjoy the good stuff from the AWA. I was there for Clash 2, and I also loved the uh, the one-hour draw. But there, people bag on the AWA. There was good stuff. They didn't run many angles or whatever, but they did run some really good matches, especially with Nick and Kurt. But that, that's my homework for you kids out there. Thanks again, John. It was my pleasure. No problem. If you uh, AWA had some good stuff in 1986, which is when the Henning Bockwinkle match took place. They they had some other stuff that wasn't so good. I, I watched them every week on WPIX. And, you know, like I said, you have the Midnight Rockers against Rose and Summers, and that's excellent. And then you know, just the rest of the program wasn't always that good. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank Lou Kippelman, our producer, for all the great work he does making us sound good. I hope he can make me sound good this week because I'm losing my voice. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. But before I leave, I just want to point out a milestone. This is episode number 156 of Stick to Wrestling, which means that this is the end of our third year. Year four starts next week. You now have three years of Stick to Wrestling archives to listen to. We started this in nineteen uh, in 2018, and my God, that was a long time ago. If you have been a listener since the beginning, thank you so much. If you just started listening this week, thank you so much. Everyone have a great week. This concludes our podcast day.